What's up, everybody? It's Ryan Hawk here, episode one, guys, and I, I, I'm just so excited. Uh, episode one features Kelly Rudy, and Kelly is really somebody that needs no introduction if you're familiar with the hockey world. Uh, he played in the NHL for uh, you know over a decade, and uh, on top of that was you know is currently with the Hockey Night in Canada crew. Uh, he covers the Calgary Flames, does so some color commentary there. Uh, is an advocate for mental health awareness as well. Um, Kelly is, by all accounts, just a really generous guy with his time. Uh, this is not the only podcast that he's done. There's, you know, I'm sure if you looked up Kelly Rudy and Spotify or or something like that, uh, you'll see that he's he's very cool with doing stuff like this. You know, and and for me, somebody in the Vancouver area that has no credibility whatsoever, and certainly uh, Kelly could have said, you know, I don't know you, I don't know what I'm getting into, so I'll pass. Uh, he was kind enough to jump on and be the first ever guest. And on top of that, Kelly did uh, something which I won't go into the specifics because I don't want to necessarily put him on the spot. But uh, it, it was a small gesture on his part to simply put me in contact with, uh, you know, with the right people. But because of what he did, uh, this show has been able to attract some, some you know, high-profile people. And I owe Kelly a lot. You know, I owe Kelly a lot for the direction that this show is, is taking right now. Uh, because anytime you can name drop a guy like him to, uh, to somebody else... Uh, automatically it gives you that credibility. So uh, Kelly, thank you for for what you've done for me. And uh, as we we lead in here to the first episode, guys, uh, stick around even to the very end. You know, even if you're not a hockey fan, the last four or five minutes or so, I think can help anybody. And so if you know somebody who uh, who maybe doesn't follow the sport, or, or doesn't uh, you know doesn't follow Hockey Night in Canada doesn't follow the Calgary Flames play them the last four or five minutes here because I think uh, I think what Kelly talks about is going to benefit anybody not just not just a hockey fan so uh, without further ado guys episode one all right so joining me for episode one of Hockey Talk with Ryan Hawk uh, I've got just a legend here. I'm I'm flying like Icarus, a little too close to the sun for that first one here. Uh, Ke- Kelly Rudy joins me, uh, you know, former NHL goaltender, uh, as well as now working with Hockey Night in Canada, does, does some commentary with the, the Calgary Flames as well. Uh, Kelly, thank you for, for coming on. Yeah, well, thanks for the invite, Ryan. I, wow, I didn't realize this is episode number one. Uh, and uh, so I'm honored in that sense. And I want to thank you for following up because we had chatted a few months ago and and uh, weren't able to make it happen. So thank you, and I'm glad to be on. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, well, I figure we should just dive right in because there's a, there's a lot to talk about with you. Um, and starting off, the fact that, uh, you know, you're a goaltender, and, and growing up in, in Vancouver, we didn't have too many kids that volunteered. So I'm just kind of curious, uh, what, what, uh, what led you to want to fill the net instead of being a skater? Wow, that's a, that's a tough question in the sense that, I don't have like a real clear answer. So when I was 11 years old, I had not played organized hockey yet. Uh, I played ball hockey and street hockey and so on uh, in summer and winter with all my buddies in the neighborhood and my brother and stuff. But uh, when I was 11, I went to my mom and dad and asked if I could join an organized hockey team. Uh, And it was simply based on the fact, Brian, I just want to be around my friends more often. That's it. As simple as that. I had no aspirations of being a pro athlete. I had no idea how that would ever happen. I 
didn't know there was a path for that to ever happen for a kid growing up in uh, Elmwood, a little community in Western or West Edmonton. And uh, my mom and dad gave me great advice. So they said, uh, well, no, you can't join this year, but certainly next year, but you have to take this winter and learn how to skate. So it turned out to be the best advice I was maybe ever given. And uh, so I went every day after school. Of course, it was quite cold back then in Edmonton in the early 60s uh, uh, or in late 60s, early 70s. And so I just went to the outdoor rink and learned, again, playing scrimmage with all my buddies and shinny and all that. And then the year that I was going to join hockey, it might have been around September, maybe August. It doesn't matter. But I'm over at my friend's house, Jeff Marshall. We're playing ball hockey, taking shots on each other. And Jeff may have asked me the question, so what position do you think you want to play? And I was not really sure. And Jeff's dad happened to be walking by at around the same time. And he said something like, he stopped and said something like, you know, Kelly, I don't want to influence you too much. But whenever I watch all of you guys play ball hockey, when you're in the net, you stop the ball more than anybody else. And I thought, hmm, maybe I'll give it a whirl. And so that was my first, you know, sort of dive into it. And then I, I tried it the first time and I, I thought, wow, this is incredible. And uh, so I was completely uh, hooked at that point. But here's the other great thing, Ryan, and, and I get what you're saying about not a lot of kids wanting to play goal. Um, it's a hard position. Uh, there's a, there was a perception that you didn't have to be a very good skater, which is completely false, but I'll get into more of that later. But it's also very, very expensive. And yeah. I was lucky because Elmwood, the community in which I grew up, they, if you wanted to play goal, they would lend you the equipment for the year because my mom and dad could not have afforded uh, the equipment. In fact, it wasn't until my second year playing that uh, I got uh, skates, not goalie skates, but my own brand new pair of skates. They cost 19 bucks. And because my first year playing when I was 12, I didn't even have a hard cap toe. You know, there oh. I was on a league. So I had used skates and, uh, you know, a soft toe skate. Luckily, you know, guys didn't shoot hard back then. <laughs> uh, and so I got away with it. But next year, I was able to buy those new skates. Again, I played community hockey for the next, what, five or six years. So every year, you know, they led me the equipment. Otherwise, you would not be sitting here talking to me from Vancouver uh, <laughs> saying I'm talking to a guy that played 15 years in the National Hockey League. That wouldn't happen. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I did see actually Hockey Canada, they announced their, their World Junior team this year. And, and there was the, the first comment I saw on social media was that team looks good, but goaltending could be iffy. And uh, I just want to get your thoughts because even when I played back in, you know, the mid 90s is when I started to play and we used to do these uh, hockey gear drives where they'd set up in a parking lot and you'd have kids from Pee Wee and they would resell their gear to the smaller kids. And it seems like we've gotten away from that. Do you think this is an issue Hockey Canada maybe needs to evaluate to get more kids involved? Or You know, that's such a difficult to dilemma to be in because I understand it from a parent's standpoint also. You, you're trying to give your son or your daughter the best available equipment so you somehow convince yourself in your head that that's – you know, going to make them a better player, whether it's a skater or a goalie. And that just simply isn't the case. And, uh, but I do feel badly for parents that feel the pressure and, you know, they look around, the kids look around in the dressing room and some kids have uh, the best stuff and others uh, don't. But I've always said all along uh, to the kids, when I speak to them, 
don't put that sort of pressure on your mom and dad. Um, yeah. if, if you can go to a place like play it again, sports or other places like you were talking about where you get to used equipment at a discount price. Uh, you'll be just fine. The equipment never makes the player. I love to tell this story. Also, Paul coffee, who might go down as one of the greatest skaters of all time. Uh, I was surprised to learn after getting to know him that uh, he used the same brand of skates as I did Bowers and he didn't even use their top of the line. He just wore the ones that fit the best for him and uh, gave him what he needed. And so I've always shared that story as well that, um, you know, it, it, but it's a tough road. Listen, we all fall into that trap and I've done the same with my kids and, you know, you know, I don't know if there's ever going to be a right or wrong answer. Yeah, no, I didn't, I like what you said there. That the gear doesn't make the player because I remember when Marcus Naslund was at his peak in Vancouver and they were selling these Nike hockey sticks, and I, I ended up getting one, thinking, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna light it up with my Marcus." Nasland. It didn't happen the way I thought. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if if it were true that the equipment made the player, I'd be a pretty good golfer. <laughs> Yeah, I'm still a crappy good. golfer, but I love it and I'm addicted. And, you know, I just can't wait to get back on the course. Yeah, that's right. Um, I guess leading into to kind of as you were coming up too, I mean, at what age, you know, you mentioned your, your friend's dad making the comment about how you're stopping all these these hockey balls. And, and so playing organized hockey, when did you start to kind of realize, hey, I might I might be good enough to go play junior? Yeah, that, that just wasn't part of the equation. In fact, uh uh, I'm always happy to tell people my mom and dad gave my brother and I the greatest gift when we were growing up because we lived fairly close to uh, Banff and Jasper that that was our summer holiday we couldn't afford okay. anything else and so uh, and I don't mean that in a dis dismissive way like yeah. I said it's the greatest gift ever given to me a love for the mountains so we'd go to the mountains and so my goal in life was I wanted to be a park warden in uh, Banff, okay. Jasper, Yoho, Kootenai something like that uh, and, uh, of course the game of hockey got in the way, but nobody would have ever predicted that because I don't think that it really became on my radar until maybe after my second year playing in medicine hat that I thought, Hmm, you know what? I might have a chance to actually be a pro. I was already drafted, uh, by the Islanders, but up until that point, my path was, it was not like, it was, it was like that all the time. Yeah. It was not this it wasn't until i was i guess about 16 17 that i started to show quite a bit of improvement in fact our team uh, won the edmonton city championship in 78 and also the provincial championship in 78 okay. and that's what led me to going to medicine Hat. now back then most people wouldn't remember this ryan but there was no uh, midget draft or anything like no. that so you would just get sent a letter from the teams in the Western Hockey League. And so New West sent me a letter and Medicine Hat sent me a letter. And I believe Medicine Hat, they weren't very good. And New West, I think, had been a powerhouse for a while. And that was quite a ways from home. Not that I expected to make uh, a team in the Western Hockey League, because frankly, I was hoping to play for St. Albert in the Alberta Junior Hockey League, which would have only been about 15 minutes away from my mom and dad's house. But I go to Medicine Hat. And Vic Stasiak is the coach. He's one of the most famous uh, hockey players, in particular Ukrainian, which is my heritage. And so okay. that was really cool to meet Vic Stasiak. And uh, he's our coach. The second day of training camp, he calls me into his office. And I'm thinking, well, my, my past has always been I always get cut. I had never gone into okay. a fall training camp without getting cut at least once, twice, 
one year, I believe, three times. And so uh, I was fully expecting to sit down in that chair across from Vic, and he's going to go, well, thanks, Kelly, for coming, and uh, have a good year, and maybe at some point uh, we might call you up, or, you know, you can come back next year to try out. Within two minutes, he tells me that I'd made the Tigers on the second day. <laughs> yeah. And I'm shocked. I, I had never made a team without being cut. And yeah. so I said to Vic, I said, well, uh, I was very shy. And I said, well, we have a problem because I didn't think I was going to make the team. And I only came with one pair of jeans and two T-shirts, <laughs> thinking I'm going to go home in the first weekend, right? So we worked out the details, and I went home midweek, and uh, Doug Smeaton was our general manager, and he uh, came to Edmonton and met with my parents and my brother and I, and we made the, uh, the giant leap to leave home at 17 and go to Medicine Hat. I was terribly homesick, as you can imagine, as all kids are. I think about that all the time when in September when kids are leaving, either for university or college or playing junior hockey somewhere or wherever – life might be taking them and I think about how lonely you know it'll be for them to start out with hopefully they can manage it hopefully their mental health uh is okay and they're strong enough to withstand the loneliness loneliness and being away from home and family and I struggled through like I, I remember my mom has reminded me that I used to call often and and say, I don't know if I can last, I don't know if I can stay, and she'd say, well, sleep on it, and then let's chat again tomorrow, and inevitably, I'd say, yeah, I'm okay, I can last, and so we struggled mightily that year, but uh, we were so terrible that I was either most likely going to get booted from the game, because I wasn't improving enough, or I would really start to show a lot of improvement, and that's what happened, and then took off, I had quite a good year, even though the numbers Ryan wouldn't suggest it. If you look at my goals against average, my first year in the hat, it was 6.17. <laughs> now, conversely, I think I played like 55 games, so I played the lion's share of the games in only, what, 72, I think we played back then. And uh, But I was also voted the team MVP and team uh, rookie of the year, so sort of misleading those kind of numbers. And then the next year I was drafted. Uh, after that year, we had quite a good year. We went to the Eastern Conference Finals versus uh, Regina. And uh, that's when I think the hockey world started to sort of notice me a little bit. And you mentioned that they're the, like the Medicine Hat teams, they weren't that great. And I was actually looking like the most notable name I saw was Oren Cools, who is a Hollywood producer. So it's it's not even you were the only guy that I saw. I was like, OK, you know, because sometimes played on that team and he had a long NHL career. OK. And Ken Solheim was, I thought, our best player. He was our biggest star. Other than Steve Tajur, that's a bit of a side story. But Stevie, uh, I'll get to him as soon as I talk about Ken Solheim. Solheim was drafted in the second round also in 1980, uh, I believe just ahead of me. And uh, he, I thought he was going to be a star. I'm not sure whatever happened, but uh, he played a little bit, maybe 100 games in the National Hockey League. But Stevie Tajura was our best player by far. And in today's game, yeah. Ryan, he would be playing in the NHL if times were different. But he was uh, like five foot six, 165 pounds. And so they didn't give players like that any opportunity. He had a really good AHL career. And I think he finished yeah. off in uh, maybe Switzerland. And I know uh, because of his Japanese heritage, he may have played a year or two over in Japan. But just a phenomenal hockey player. And I always felt badly for Steve that, you know, given a different time, he would have been a really good NHL player because highly skilled. And, you know, you look at a lot of the players in today's NHL game, 
they're not big and and they're really slight you don't have yeah. to be a big six foot three guy and 215 pounds it, you know the game is for everybody everybody right now yeah definitely and, and i wanted to ask you like what's the story you had 43 pims out one year in medicine hot was that uh quite a lot <laughs> people don't know that see when i went to the island and started playing with billy smith people yeah. thought that's where i became kind of feisty and that was that's not accurate at all you know growing up i always had that sort of streak in me and uh i i like sharing my first fighting story from medicine hat so i had not been in a fight in junior minor hockey but so i'm fighting a defenseman from the calgary wranglers we're at home you know big brawl and uh i'm fighting this guy he's a little bit bigger than i am and the linesmen are trying to break us up and one of the linesmen says okay let go and i'm thinking that must signal the end of the fight. So I let go of the guy, and he just up and walls me one right in the eye. So the next day we had our team picture, and I had a big shiner. Oh, my gosh. It was funny. Good memory. I, I, I can tell you what. When I got in a few fights after that, I never let go of the linesman told it to. So, but, uh, yeah, I was pretty feisty. And, again, it was a different era, right, Ryan? So there yeah. was lots of line brawls bench clearing brawls, all sorts of things back then. I'm happy to say that doesn't uh, exist anymore. But back then, that was sort of the way to intimidate and maybe break the spirit and the will of the opposition. Well, and it, you know, you bring up Billy Smith, and I want to talk about him in a, in a bit here too. But one of the things that, you know, I, I, I never saw him play, and I looked up some of the highlights trying to find some saves or something, and, and all the highlights are him, you know, slashing Gretzky in the knees. I, there was one one video clip was him actually squaring up with a skater, I think on Washington, and one of the defensemen came in to take the other skater, and Billy waves him off, and he, you know, and I'm going, I'm like, this guy is your starting goaltender. He's he could risk breaking a hand or you know busting his eye open, and he just didn't care. And it was vicious, uh, man. You didn't, you were careful going around his crease, and uh, he was mean, and he was also dirty mean. So he he had no problem crossing the line. Now he was tough. And I'm not taking away from his toughness, but I don't know if there's, uh, and I, maybe I'm missing, but I don't know if there's a tougher goalie, though, than Ray Emery. And uh, when That's Ray true. was playing the National Hockey League, man, he was unbelievable. He was, he was a beast. And uh, uh, I got a kick out of watching him fight. But, you know, uh, once again, good thing that doesn't happen very much anymore. <laughs> yeah. What was uh, scouting like back then to get to the NHL? Because nowadays with social media, I mean, we're seeing, I mean, out here in Vancouver, this kid, Connor Bedard, just got exceptional status. And you can see clips of him lighting it up in Vancouver at 12 years old. And, you know, back then, obviously that wasn't available. So was it kind of the similar getting into the dub for you where you got a letter or maybe a couple phone calls and that was it? Well, uh, the scouts, we were always made aware basically when they were in the building and, you know, it's pretty easy to spot a scout, right? And, and back in those days, you know, they'd have the overcoat. Some of them might have the top hat and they'd been yeah. guys that had been around uh, the NHL for a long, long time, whether they were ex-players or management and, you know, they're hitting the highways in Western Canada in those rugged winter storms and putting on all sorts of miles to get from town to town. And uh, on occasion, we would get to meet them. In fact, I was lucky uh, my, after my, uh, a game in Billings my second year, our coach, Patty Janelle, uh, asked to see me outside the dressing room. And uh, much to my surprise, he introduced me to uh, uh, 
legendary hockey figure, a guy by the name of Rudy Pillis. And Ru- Rudy, up until Joel Quenville was winning coach for Chicago, Rudy Pillis was the last winning coach for the Chicago Blackhawks. And so it was quite an honor. And uh, Rudy had also been uh, general manager, I believe, for the Blackhawks at some point. And now he is scouting. And so the introduction was made and Rudy said something to me like, you know, Kelly, I like your game, but every once in a while, it looks like you're afraid of the puck. <laughs> I couldn't hide my honesty. I go, yeah, it hurts. Like, you know, the equipment we wore back then, and I still have, I'm not making this up. I still have a couple of spots on my body where you can see the indentation of a puck because yeah. our equipment was so terrible. And, and uh, so that was, that was kind of like the circles, but I wasn't supposed to be a high draft choice. So I, I never had any meetings with anybody. I, I didn't go down that road. Um, I didn't even have an agent uh, going into the draft. Um, so all of that came afterwards. And uh, I just remember playing ball hockey with my brother in my mom and dad's basement the day of the draft. It was 1980. The draft was held in Montreal, I think, for the first time that players would actually attend the draft. But only okay. the first guys that were supposed to be first rounders, nobody else went. And uh, so I were playing ball hockey. My brother hears the phone. He runs upstairs answers it and says, Kelly, the phone's for you. Go upstairs and Jimmy Devolano, he was uh, Bill Torrey's assistant general manager on the Islanders. He introduces himself and says, congratulations, we've drafted you in the second round. And and it was a very short conversation. And then he said, uh, in the next, in the mail, in the next few weeks, you'll get some info about uh, moving forward and so on. And that was it. And I went back down and played ball hockey. I mean, it was not like today's fanfare. And as you mentioned, yes. uh, the social media and the aspect that you can see everybody and all these things. Although uh, I do feel badly for a lot of these, these players and in particular the younger players, because I, I think social media, although it can be used for good, um, yeah. Some of the comments, I mean, it would be awfully difficult, I would think, to be an athlete and, and hear or read some of those things that are being said about these young people that have not, they don't, they're not mature enough and they don't have a lot of life experience. And, and I think it'd be awfully difficult. Yeah, I mean, I just missed it myself. Uh, you know, I mean, not that I was ever close to making it, but, uh, you know, I, I played against Landon Ferraro as a kid and, and, you know, he and I were the same, um, same size and he was a thousand times the player. And that's when I kind of realized it's probably not in the cards. So I'll just host a podcast 15 years later. But, uh, I think that's, that's, you're right. I mean, I, I think about some of these kids cause even on Instagram, it, it's just a basic, here's a, here's a video of this kid. And, and then he got all the negative. It's, it's really tough to read. Um, for you coming in as a, a you know a guy from the Edmonton area, uh, coming into the Islanders, um, I mean, what's that like? I mean, you're, you're coming in with all these guys like Trache and Potvin and Bossy, and, and they broke Edmonton's heart for a few years as well. Uh, but it was odd. Let's just say 1980. <laughs> so uh, I had only been when I was 16 years old. That was the first flight I had ever taken. That was from with my hockey team in Edmonton. Uh, over the Christmas holidays to go to Vancouver. We played in a tournament at the North Shore Winter Club, yep. and we're able to go to a game, Islanders versus the Canucks. Islanders won. Chico Resch played. Islanders won that game 5-1, and uh, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And But other than that, other than traveling with my junior team to cities like Vancouver, uh, Portland, excuse me, Seattle, 
I had never really been to a big city. Now, Edmonton at the time was, you know, 400,000 or 500,000. Uh, so in my eyes, that was a big city. But then I was drafted to the Islanders. And then luckily for me, I'm going to New York for training camp. And I couldn't believe my eyes. I mean, I'm flying into LaGuardia Airport over Manhattan. Never, had, never even dreamt what Manhattan would look like. Uh, going to Long Island, and I think our hotel was at least an hour or more from uh, LaGuardia Airport to uh, uh, Hempstead, I think it was, um, Long Island, and, and just being blown away by the size of this place. Anyways, then the next day, going to training camp and meeting the guys that you mentioned, uh, Dennis Potvin, Clark Gillies, Mike Bossy, Brian Trache, Billy Smith, Bob Bourne, Bob Nystrom, uh, uh, Butch Goring, all these guys. Just phenomenal experience. And I was extremely shy, so I remember not saying anything, but just trying to watch those guys and learn. And uh, that I did. I was, uh, I was really good at listening, and that happened to be one of my greatest qualities And just watching those guys and learning everything how to be uh, an NHL player. Yeah, was Billy Smith pretty relaxed off the ice? He was. He had yeah. a really good sense of humor. Uh, I don't think people knew that. Uh, the one thing that Billy taught me a lot of great things, but one of the things that lasted forever um, and still remains to this day for, with me is that uh, I understand what's happening. You're trying to take my job. That's yeah. the nature of the beast. That's how it works. Uh, but I'm not going to hand it to you. If you ultimately take my job because you've earned it, that's how it goes. But Billy, I recall when I started to take over a little bit, he would go into the coach's room, whether it was Al Arbor or Terry Simpson, and uh, if I had to start the next day, and he would go in and speak his mind. And when I finally had the courage, uh, I recall one time I knew what was happening. I saw Billy going into, it might have been Al's office, I can't remember. And I followed him right in, and I let him <laughs> say what he wanted. I said, but that's, you know, Bull, I, I'm playing better right now, and I deserve yeah. it. And I was really proud of myself for standing up uh, in that way. But that's what he really taught me. And so my point being, when I went to L.A. and I had – now I'm the guy being chased, and everybody's trying to run you down and take your job, uh, of which I never took personally. But you got to play better than me then. It's, it's all on the line, and if you do, well, that's how it goes. But I was never the guy – and. Uh, uh, never one of those guys that, oh, hey, how are you? Yeah, we should split 50-50 even if you're not playing. It's <laughs> not a chance. You've got to earn it. Yeah, it's funny. Like with goalies too, there's only – I mean, now there's, what, 62 jobs in the NHL for this, right? So it is so competitive. And, and I was I was going to ask you because, it you know, your first year in Long Island, it looks like you got called up mid-year from Indianapolis. My first year I played the entire year. I oh, went down for two weeks uh, conditioning okay. stint because I wasn't playing as very much. I believe I only played 12 games that first year. We carried yeah. three goalies, Billy, William, okay. Melanson, and I. And so I think in January or something, maybe before the roster freeze, I went down for two weeks or something like that. I played a few games just to get some ice time. But uh, I was in uh, New York basically the entire year. Okay. And then the next year, it was like you were you were playing, you know, half the season or more and and i'm just kind of wondering what was that just simply because the coaching staff said hey kelly's like you said were you just playing better and they decided hey we'll we'll put kelly as our starter it was a combination billy was still a fantastic goalie right and in fact that year in the playoffs he was 
lights out. Uh, the reason he's the reason why we beat Washington is a best of five, and uh, Billy was crazy in in Game Five. But uh, Al always believed in sort of rotating the goalies too. So Al, I don't think ever really thought that one guy should play the bulk of the games. I think he was pretty much evenly split. Although he had watched, you know, what's happening in in sort of like what's trending right now. Who's playing a little bit better? Better, and you might get two or three consecutive starts. But it, it would work in the other guy's favor also. So that was the uh, the mindset behind uh, uh, the rotation and. Uh, I just started to get better and better. And finally in 86, I started to play 85, 86. And I played all the playoff games, even though we lost in the first round to Washington. And then the next year I started all 14 games. Uh, we played, uh, we lost to Philly in the second round in game seven. Well, and you mentioned Billy Smith being the reason that you guys beat Washington and you actually were the reason why you guys did beat Washington in, in at least one game. Uh, I thought this was incredible, and I, I vaguely remember. I think it was John Davidson made like a lighter side of hockey way back when, and and you were in the video as uh, Pat Lafontaine did like a turnaround slap shot, uh, and it was the fourth overtime game uh, or fourth overtime of the game, I should say. You stopped seventy three shots, and I got to know when you're going into overtime and it's becoming overtime two, three, and and four, like or. What's the feeling? Are, are guys just worried about making a mistake, or is the coaching staff saying, "Hey, you got to go and, and just play it like it's a normal period, and then just try to get it done"? I don't think there is much coaching going on after I'd say, <laughs> yeah. the first overtime, and maybe partial partway through the second overtime. I mean, it was pretty clear to everybody that uh, both teams were exhausted. Uh, I, I'm shocked, though. I've watched the game recently. And I'm shocked by the pace of the, the game in the second, third, and the fourth overtime, con considering how worn out everybody was. And so, um, yeah, I just recall it being quite pretty subdued in the dressing room and the inter intermissions. Um, I also remember that was a turning point for me in my playing days because I remember kind of as the period was winding down, say the first period – uh, of overtime, my mind started to wander a little bit. Like, okay, you're going to get a break here. You know, you'll you'll get to 15 minutes to rest. And then I also recognized going into the start of the next overtime that my mind wasn't quite as sharp as it needed to be. I, I needed more focus. And so that always stood with me. And I've always – I've been on record many, many, many times saying the goal is usually scored in the first two minutes or the last two minutes of an – uh, overtime period. Now it's been proven statistically through analytics that it's actually the first three and last three, but that's pretty darn close to me. But the reasons are exactly what I've said because focus isn't quite there. Uh, I also remember, you know, an interesting fact from that game because it was uh, seven periods, the entire hockey world was watching because there are no other NHL playoff games at night. Uh, yeah. And so I, because of that game, I was invited to the 87 Canada Cup to play for Team Canada. And, and Gretzky, we're playing the Soviets in the finals. And going into game two, uh, into the overtime, I believe we're going to the second overtime. And we're walking from the bench towards the dressing room. And Gretzky grabs me and says, hey, uh, when we get into the dressing room, I want you to address the team and talk about what it's like to play long overtimes. And I'm thinking, wow. this is 
crazy. <laughs> Not only is Wayne trying to get me to talk to the guys, I go in the dressing room and Wayne says, hey, guys, uh, I want everybody's attention. Kelly's going to talk to you about how to prepare for long overtime. And I'm looking around, there's Wayne and Mark and <laughs> Ray Bork and Mario and, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And they're like this. They're all staring at me like they're they're mesmerized. What is this guy? What sort of wisdom is is he going to impart on us? And I, it was just freaky. But I that's what I talked to them about the focus in the first yeah. two minutes and last two minutes. And uh, man, that was a good time. I I, I couldn't <laughs> believe Wayne put me in that position. Yeah. Though. It was yeah. Pretty cool. No pressure, Kelly. Just tell tell this room full of Hall of Famers. Have uh, a drink. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, you made 73 saves in that game too. And that actually, that record stood until just this past August where, uh, Corpus Allo broke it. Uh, and I was, I was kind of, I remember when, when he had the 85 saves there and that, the, I can't remember how many overtimes that game was, but, uh, like I literally started my work day with that game on and I finished my work day. That game was still going. But uh, I was kind of curious, you know, when they were in the bubble, I thought, I wonder what these guys do, you know, for, for food and everything. And what was it like for you guys back in, in that four overtime game? You just pound back as many carbs and sleep as much as you can? Or? In 1987, Ryan, they didn't have uh, – they weren't prepared that way. They didn't no. – and if you've ever been to that old rink uh, in Landover, Washington, I don't know where the closest pizza joint would have been. So we weren't able to get in any food. Um, oh, wow. Maybe, maybe there were a few bananas or oranges laying around, but I don't remember – anything really and keep in mind uh i don't even think uh energy bars even existed back then so no. we were i was just drinking water or gatorade or some sort of uh fluid like that but i do know after the game after the handshake and some media and stuff it might have been the game ended at four minutes to two in the morning it, i suppose i was probably taking off my gear including my skates around 15 after two and I start to unlace my skates and I take them off and my I was so dehydrated my toes no exaggeration they they immediately curled under I I, I just was done I had nothing left in the body and uh, so that was really difficult back in those days to try and get rehydrated for the next game which was actually going to be Monday night in Philadelphia and so uh, we did our best, but uh, I was exhausted that Monday. I, I got pulled after the first period. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. And so you end up going from Long Island to LA. Um, I mean, that team had Gretzky, Bernie Nichols, Luke Robitaille. I mean, that, and that was also the year they went to the Cup Finals as well. And where does that moment, uh, that run, rank in your career? Uh, that was uh, that's a hard. Oh man. You know, I think most hockey fans would think that uh, if you go to the Stanley Cup Finals, there must be some sort of satisfaction there. And that might be, if you don't win a Stanley Cup, that might be, uh, you know, maybe your hockey or greatest hockey achievement. But the only thing I can really think about when I recall going back to the finals in 93 and losing is that it's the greatest heartbreak of my career in terms of playing hockey. So, you know, you have other highs and lows, clearly, but. I'd even have to say as disappointing as it is to lose in the first round of the playoffs, it's more crushing to lose in the finals because you're, you're so close. And in our case, we had won game one and we were about a minute 40 away from winning game two. Uh, and so 
you know, it, it's just a terrible memory. And, uh, you know, it's not that I think about it very often, but when I'm asked to talk about it, it certainly isn't a highlight uh, for me. I, in fact, I still can't watch it. I, you know, with yeah. all these uh, <coughs> classic games that they've had during the uh, pandemic and I can watch game one and uh, a bit of game two, but I, I haven't watched uh, games uh, three, four and five, just, no interest. I know what happens and I don't like it. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, what was the atmosphere in LA like that following season? Because the team had success. They've got the biggest player in the world at the time. And uh, I did have a chance to talk to Bernie Nichols about this. And he said, you know, it went from kind of one one season before Gretz. It was kind of, you know, you had the Lakers and, and this, you know, all these celebrities. And then after that, it was Gretzky came to town. The team had, uh, you know, some success. And he said all of a sudden it was a whole new world for, for the LA Kings. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I remember going there as a visiting player and on a good night, you might get 10,000 people in the uh, forum. Um, but most nights, you know, you'd read the box score in the paper the next day and there might be 7,000 at a Kings game. And, and, uh, but when Wayne went there, it changed dramatically. And now I wasn't there for the first, what, three, four months. Yeah. I came in February after he got traded there, and uh, but it was just remarkable. It, it happened to be one of the proudest things that all of us that played in that time in L.A. were most proud of when the Kings actually won their first Stanley Cup in 2012 because now they're, the cities and the state, in fact, you could really call it a hockey hotbed. And, you know, there are a lot of great kids that now play hockey in California and, and uh, the junior leagues in California – or in, in Canada are littered with these great talented kids now. So that's exciting. But what got our, us so excited and so proud is that we saw that transformation. So when we came to LA and I think I, I only know of two rinks in LA area, there was uh, the great Western forum where we played and a rink uh, um, Culver city ice rink. And that was terrible, like horrible ice, but that's where we practiced. And just a few years ago, I was doing research. San Diego had a rink, of course, and uh, there might have been one or two others in all of Southern California. I did a, I was doing something, some sort of research for a project uh, five, six years ago, and it, it was shocking for me to find out there's something like 70 sheets of ice now in, uh, in oh. that Southern California area. And that's exciting, right? So that, that growth was all because of Wayne and what he did to transform the game of hockey into a global game. And man, that was cool to see. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing too. I know Austin Matthews has gone on record saying, you know, he saw Daniel Briere in, uh, in a, you know, Phoenix Coyotes Jersey. And now we see Vegas too. I'm thinking, well, give it another 10, 15 years. We're going to see kids coming out of a, a grassroots Vegas program, but. And that's I mean, what's it, happening in Texas now. Yeah. And, uh, and I think the next big state that we're going to start to see some kids coming out, uh, like uh, Missouri is great with St. Louis, but they've got yeah. that alumni program that's terrific. But I think Tennessee is going to be a state where we're going to start to really see some kids uh, coming up and start to get drafted. You know, their program uh, has really taken off since the Predators are there. Uh, I understand that they had no, uh, like, amateur hockey and no uh, high school programs, and now it's almost in every school, and it's really exciting to go down there. I don't know if you've had a chance to go to Nashville to watch a game, Ryan, but when this pandemic is over and we're allowed to travel and NHL <laughs> teams, you've got to go to Nashville. That is a cool building to watch a NHL game. It, uh, it's 
I, I thought it was the lo loudest building in the NHL until Vegas came on board, and then that has eclipsed it. But a really cool experience. Yeah, I'll settle for just being able to leave my house, but definitely, uh, <laughs> but uh, but definitely Nashville. Uh, yeah, that that 2017 playoff run. I think when CBC had the cameras out, and it was I don't know what they call that street outside the arena, but it was just wall to wall Broadway. Okay. Yeah, and I just thought this is unbelievable. Country music, but you've got to go to those honky tonks. Like it was so <laughs> fun. In fact, my wife has come with me. I, I believe at least four times to Nashville when I'm working there, and so it's been awesome. And uh, you know, you get to see some world class musicians just in those little honky tonks on yeah. Broadway, and uh, it's just phenomenal experience. Yeah, yeah, they they, they just post up in like a bar don't they it's just kind of like an open mic night <laughs> open mic there's no uh, there's no cover charge although they come around with the you know the bowl asking for donations but this is not an exaggeration but uh, you'll go in, into a place and even on a sunday afternoon i remember this happening in uh, a place that i really like called roberts and uh, not many people in there it's two o'clock in the afternoon i've got the day off and uh, wander in there for a cold beer and you know they start introducing the band members and they're all with world-class bands like I remember one of the players played in Vince Gill's band at the time and others were you know other maybe less known bands but still people that toured and I'm like holy crap I'm sitting in a bar in Nashville listening to world-class musicians hasn't cost me a dime yet not until I pull out a couple bucks and throw it in the in the bowl but yeah, you know, and that's what Nashville's like. Like, you are not going to watch second-class musicians that, you know, um, you know, they, they never find employment anywhere. These guys are gainfully employed and and gals and just phenomenal. That's awesome. Well, you, you finished up your career with San Jose, and I, I just it still blows my mind he's playing. But you you were there for Patrick Marlowe's rookie year, and uh, all this time later, he's still in the league. Uh, I mean, what do you remember, if anything, of of 18-year-old Patrick Marlowe coming in, and are you surprised to see he's still going? Well, genetically, you know, he's been blessed. I mean, that there's no question about that. You, you can have all the luck in the world, and you can have all the determination and talent, but genetically, most bodies don't hold up. That's just a fact. I, I believe he's only missed uh, 20 games in his NHL career. Like That just yeah. doesn't happen to people. So he has that going for him. Now, what most people don't uh, recognize, Ryan, uh, Patrick lived with my family and I okay. uh, his first year. It was our last year, his first year, and we're going through training camp, and uh, Donna and I, and we have three daughters, and uh, I'm starting to watch Patrick a little bit, and I knew he was going to make the team because he was just outstanding. Even I believe that he came to training camp when he was 17. He turned 18 yeah. uh, at that point, and then – I was talking to uh, my wife, Donna, and I said, you know, would you ever consider having uh, Patrick live with us during the season? And uh, I said, I think it'd be great for him and it'd be good for me because I think my enthusiasm for the game was kind of uh, diminishing a little bit. And, you know, maybe I need a little jolt of uh, enthusiasm as well. And I hope that Pat could give that to me. And so I went to the organization. Uh, Dean Lombardi was our manager. And I think Wayne Thomas, or his assistant, uh, was in the room at the time. And I mentioned it. And they thought it was a great idea. And uh, we still had one more hurdle we had to sort of get over. Uh, I mentioned it to Pat. 
but I wanted him to meet our family and I wanted our family to meet him before we made that big decision, right? Because it's yeah. it, it would be difficult to go back if it wasn't going to be a fit. So we went to a place called the Chart House in Los Gatos, a little uh, community okay. about 20 minutes away from San Jose. We lived in Los Gatos and, uh, um, and so we went for dinner and all of a sudden you could just tell there's a fit. And he was, he reminded me of me at that age because he was uh, very shy, not very talkative, but a really good listener. And that's how I would have been, right? I, I would have just sort of been trying to take it all in. And so we agreed that this was a nice fit. We kind of had a little guest house uh, attached to our house. And, uh, but Pat didn't spend much time in the guest house. He spent most of the time in our house and he was like a big brother to our kids. And uh, it was just a fantastic experience. And so, the year comes to a close. We lose to Dallas in the first round, and uh, I knew I was retiring. I had made a formal announcement, but I knew it. And uh, the team, in fact, had traded for Steve Shields, so that yeah. pretty much uh, – I did have a couple offers to go play elsewhere, but I, I just – my heart wasn't into it, and I was pretty certain I was going to be on Hockey Night in Canada, so I was looking forward to that challenge. But – Anyways, the year comes to a close, and, and uh, Don and I are going to take Pat out for a nice Italian dinner. And so we get a babysitter, and just the three of us go, and we're, you know, remembering the year and going back and talking about all the fun things we do. Like after a home game, uh, if we weren't leaving after the game, we'd come back to the house, and Donna would make sandwiches, and we'd have a couple drinks and sit up till two or three and just chat about life and family and the coolest thing. And so – for hours after every home game. It was awesome. And uh, so we're in this Italian restaurant, and uh, it's near the end of the night, and I thought I had a pretty good idea how Pat's career might go, and I'm, I'm watching the salaries go up, like Joe Sackick and Forsberg and other players, and I'm thinking, you know, Pat, I think based on what I've, based on what I've kind of earned and what I, where I see salaries going – I wouldn't be surprised if at the end of your career, you're going to make somewhere between 50 or $60 million. I'm saying this to an 18 year old kid, right? So from androids. It's a big smile. And, uh, and then I think it was 2013 or 14. I'm, I'm doing a playoff game in San Jose and it's a day off between games one and two. So I go to the practice rink and I asked with the PR guy if I can see Pat for a minute after practice and we, we chat like we always do. And, and I, I go, but in the most sincere face, I go, but I owe you a huge apology, Pat. And he gets a serious look on his face as well. And he's probably wondering, oh my gosh, what is hell you going to apologize for? And I go, you know that dinner we had? You know, <laughs> in 1998 at that Italian joint, and I told you you're going to make between 50 and 60 million dollars. I said, I'm so sorry, I, I fell about 50 million short. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, uh, we had a bit of a chuckle. He, he, he said it wasn't that much, but uh, I've, I've looked at the numbers, he's had a phenomenal run, and you know, he's a he and uh, his wife Christine are great parents. and a, Great kids, and uh, it's just been really, you know, heartwarming to see this whole thing develop uh, after knowing him when he was 17 or 18 years old. Well, and, you know, you bring up having him come live with you, and you saw how he was in Toronto with Marner and Matthews, and, and I don't know if they lived with him necessarily, but uh, just how, you know, he was the father figure in that, probably that whole room. So, And it was cool because uh, I read that uh, on a – 
they'd be on a road trip somewhere and they'd go out for dinner and then he would go back to their room and they'd order up uh, room service ice cream or something and watch a movie. And, and so it was very similar to what we would do with Pat, right? I was, yeah. I quit at 37 years old and uh, he was an 18 year old kid and uh, just, it was amazing. And, and I suspect, I guess he was talking to Rob Blake and Luke Robitaille about a year ago because I got a text from uh, Rob uh, talking about somebody they're going, you know, there's uh, actually is at hockey school for their kids in LA and uh, they're all going around just the adults and talking about who was a great influence. And Pat mentioned that he learned a lot from me and that really warmed my heart also knowing that, uh, you know, in some small way I had a bit of a impact on his, the direction of his career. Oh, most definitely. And that's what I love about hockey too. I mean, I had coaches that uh, maybe weren't the most influential and then I had some coaches that, uh, you know, like they, they just, they, you know, shot from the hip, but it's still, it was like, this is, this is sports. You know, if you want to play triple a, this is what it's going to take. And, uh, um, I, I was just curious because, you know, if we dropped 25 year old Kelly Rudy into the game today with the, the, the gear, the technology, the coaching, the fact that I don't know if back then you guys had specific goalie coaches, but now it seems like you got coaches for everything. How do you think you'd fare in, in today's game? Well, I would say this about anybody that played in any era, um, not just my era, but the guys that were uh, uh, good players in the 40s, guys that were good players in the 20s, uh, if, with all things equal, like the equipment and everything and the training and coaching, uh, if you're a good player in the 40s, uh, move forward, you would have been a good player in today's game. And I'll tell you why. Because you understand the game of hockey. You can read a play. And so, and that's the number one thing for a goalie. So uh, the equipment's a million times better uh, today, but you still have to read a play. Same as in the 80s, same as in the 60s, you know. Uh, Jerry Cheevers could have played in today's game given, you know, everything else with the equipment or anything. Because if you watch clips of he or Bernie Perrant, they could just plain old read a play. And yeah. so um, now, you know, the quality of hockey wasn't as good. There's no question about that. I like what Gretzky said a number of years ago. It's about every 10 years, there's a monumental shift in the talent level. And, it, and it's easy to see with your eyes, right? You watch a game from the 80s and you go, oh, that's pretty good. You watch a game in the 90s, you go, wow, that's really good. You watch a game from uh, 2008, you go, holy. And now you watch a game today and you go, it's not even – you know, similar. So it's always doing that. But uh, I just think uh, I could have played in today's game and I'm not trying to sound like, you know, no. cocky or considering, but, uh, and the guys today will say that like, uh, you know, Jonathan quick, he's maybe on the downside of a brilliant career, but you, you, if you look at him in 2050, you know, the game will look vastly different and he'll look small compared to a goalie back then, but you'll go the way he could read a play back in uh, 2012 you know, all things equal, he'd be a great player in today's uh, game as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And Like, look another, at Wayne Gretzky. You watch highlights yeah. of Wayne, right, Ryan? And, you know, the game was different. To, the game wasn't defended as well. But you can't teach those instincts. You know, how what he saw on the ice, that would still work in today's game. Maybe he wouldn't get 217 or 212 points, <laughs> but he would still be the best player on the ice. Yeah, I don't think we're ever going to see anyone. Uh, I know Kucherov, when he had 128 points a couple of years ago, people were raving about that. And I thought, wow, that's, that's still about 100 shy of what, uh, what 99 did. But, I mean, hey, it is what it is. Uh, 
I, I wanted to ask you just because, uh, you know, Connor Hellbuck wins the Vesna this year, and I think that kind of made people realize just how good of a goalie he is. Do you have any goalies that you think people should watch for or maybe underrated or, or maybe coming up? I mean, Carter Hart in Philly is one of those guys that I see a lot. Holy Hart, I, I mean, it's such a tough position to sort of project what might happen. I'll give you a couple examples. So uh, right now I'd say I, I'm loving Carter Hart. By the way, there's a, a great website. It's called In Goal Magazine. And uh, they're also on Instagram. But if you sign up and be a member, of which I am, uh, you can watch all these great clips from the goalies. And, and one of my favorite aspects of that to website at In Goal Magazine, and Kevin Woodley is the founder of that, yeah. uh, you can listen and watch video of those goalies breaking down actual plays in a game. Why I bring that up and why it's important is because I've been watching a bunch of those, and I remember watching one with Carter Hart. And that's why I said just moments ago about if you can read a play – so what he was talking about was identical to how I would have broken the play down. In fact, okay. we had it on a Hockey Night in Canada play. That's just a total coincidence that I'm breaking down this play months ago, and yet this is what they're talking about on the, on the website. So anyways, I'm thinking about uh, Jacob Markstrom. So you know, when I first saw him and I talked to people in the industry, they're like, he's a guaranteed star. Yeah. And you look at the path of his career and that just didn't happen. It took a long time and he traded organizations and I wouldn't say floundered in the minors, but he certainly didn't flourish either for a long time. And uh, then he found his uh, footing in Vancouver. And I even remember, I don't know, it might've been three years ago. I said on air, it was a Saturday night. And I said something like, okay, well, he's definitely an NHL goalie. I don't know if he's ever going to be a number one, but he's, he's certainly earned the right to be called a, a legit NHL goalie. Then he kept improving and improving and improving. And I think it was, might've been last season. I said, okay, I think I owe this guy an apology because not only is he a legit NHL goalie, he's a lit legit NHL starter. And, uh, and that has turned out to be the case. And we're lucky here in Calgary that I we get to watch him for six more years. But the other guy, <laughs> the other part of the spectrum is, and this is why it's so difficult to, judge or rate goalies or figure out where they might be down the road because I remember the very first time I saw Matt Murray live and he won the two consecutive cups with Pittsburgh and I'm thinking oh my gosh seriously I've been around the game at the NHL level since 1980 and although I've I've witnessed some incredible goalies over the years I'm not sure if I've seen a better young goalie it was a full package right technically yeah. everything great mentally um, there, there are just no red sign or no flags there that, you know, trouble might be lurking. And you look at him now, they traded him simply because he just mentally, the game is a challenge for him. And, and I hope he can get it back because he's a great kid and he works his butt off. But that's the challenge of this position. Sometimes it gets in your head and, and that's the enemy. It's not stopping the puck, it's your head. And that is the enemy. Yeah. And it's happened to many, many guys over the years. It happened to me uh, my 10th year in the league. And I had an, uh, a stretch where I lost all confidence and I, the game had me down on my knees. And I had an episode in Milwaukee uh, the night before one of those neutral site games we used to play. And uh, I was becoming unglued and the pressure was getting the best of me. Um, I thought I was going to be done. 
Uh, I didn't think I'd ever play again in National Hockey League. And luckily for me, I was able to talk to uh, somebody and get some help. Barry Melrose, my coach, he recognized that I needed help. And it wasn't anything I could do physically. I couldn't work harder in practice. I couldn't. I didn't need to face more shots. But my, my brain was in the way. And I've talked a lot about this over the years. Uh, our family, we're not shy in sharing our story with our daughter, Caitlin, and she's taught us about what she's gone through in mental health and that loop. I didn't understand that back then. I learned to understand it with Caitlin's help, but that loop was going round and round and round. It was telling me nothing but negative. Yeah. And I, I didn't know how to break it. And luckily, Barry uh, had, uh, he had known Tony Robbins, and so uh, they set up a meeting. It was uh, before a game, a Saturday afternoon, uh, January of 93, and uh, uh, I was lucky enough to meet Tony, and we went through all these exercises and talked about me, and uh, it was it was transformative because I was able to turn my year around. We ended up going to the finals that year, and also uh, I ended up playing five more years in the NHL. So without that help, like I told you, I thought yeah. it was done. Sudden, I'm playing five more years. And uh, so that's what I really hope a guy like Matt Murray can do and, and uh, get the help he needs because he's a phenomenal goalie. But, uh, you know, sports can beat you up that way. Life can beat you up that way for anybody. Yeah, I mean, you know, we had Markstrom, obviously, like you said, in Vancouver. And uh, I'm sure you as a Calgary Flames commentator are pleased to see that he took about half the Canucks uh, this offseason. But uh, it's uh, – <laughs> I don't know. I was I was looking for an overlap, thinking was there like a scout that went from Vancouver to Calgary or somebody, but it, does, it just appears they just liked what they saw, I guess. But uh, but uh, you know Markstrom, yeah, I, I think at one point he was named the best goalie not in the NHL, and then the Canucks get get him in a trade, and it was like you know I mean Vancouver, I I'm 29, I can't remember a time where there wasn't some kind of controversy with uh, having a two goalie system, but. Um, it's good. You're right. I mean, it, he, he really excelled and it, you know, I mean, he, he got his payday and that's awesome, but, uh, it is, it's, it's a very tough, you know, I, I, I had a guy at the last show I used to host, I had my old goaltender who played, you know, junior and college and everything. And he was, he was relatively normal, but we were kind of reminiscing and saying, you know, we had this other goalie that year that that guy was kind of, you know, it's a bit of a basket case some days and it's a very tough mental, uh, mental position. Um, speaking of the Calgary Flames, though, you guys, uh, you know, the Flames, they've got Gaudreau, Monaghan, uh, the two stars that have drawn some criticism. And I mean, are we going to see possibly a changing of the guard? It looks like Matthew Kachuk's already pretty much made himself the team MVP uh, on the Flames. Yeah, Matthew's, you know, played unbelievable and he's earning all the praise he gets. But I'm still not about to say that uh, changing of the guard yet. I think that uh, Gaudreau and Monaghan, uh, had by their standards a subpar year last year, but I've seen enough of those guys and I'm, I've been around them enough to know how driven they are. And, and that won't sit well with them. Like Sean Monaghan is a guy that he has talked publicly, like going into the previous season that although he had been around the league a number of years, he still didn't feel he had accomplished much, which, you know, he's being pretty tough on himself considering he basically scores 30 goals every single yeah. year. I mean, and any most players other than Ovechkin and, and 20 others would be pretty darn happy with that. But <laughs> that's how critical he was of himself. And he said he wanted to be a better all-around player. And so with that sort of drive and with the way that 
Johnny wants to produce. I, I think that uh, when you look at the upcoming year, that they should have really strong years again. And, you know, every player has years where what so-called down years. It, it's impossible yeah. to be a model of consistency. They're very rare where you have guys like Ovechkin and Gretzky and, and the others uh, throughout the history that seemingly don't have – a real down year. Everybody else falls into that category and nobody's excluded from that club other than a few guys. Yeah. I mean, and watching Kachuk, it seemed like the team just kind of lost life when he got hurt in the playoffs too. And I, uh, personally, I, I like, you know, I'm not a Canuck fan myself, even though I live in the Vancouver area. So I actually don't mind Kachuk. I think he's a, he's hilarious to watch, but I mean, he's one of those guys that, that nowadays they're they're kind of that unicorn. Like every team would love to have him because he can get you sixty points and he can score a highlight reel between the leg bar down with one second to go in overtime. But then he can also drive you nuts. Yeah, I, I think it's also you know his dad sort of played the same way. His dad was a rugby yeah. player, but I think also in the terms of what. I kind of understand with Matthew being around him, his parents did a wonderful job with he and the, the kids, Brady and their daughter and stuff. Uh, Keith and Chantel have done a great job in keeping them grounded. I, what I love about Matthew is that uh, <clears throat> unlike some of the kids in today's game, some of the younger players, they don't know much about the history of the game. Like, Trust me, I, I don't think you need to be a hockey historian, but I think if you're going to earn a little bit of dough in the game, you should know some of the history. Right? Or no matter what occupation you're in, you should sort of know some of the history and what happened before you came along and, and so on. And that's what I really admire about Matthew. He gets that. He, yeah. he understands the history of the game, and he's respectful about the, the previous uh, generations that have played and the people around it. So that's been really cool to see. And uh, – that is something that really sticks with me about uh, some of the players coming in that, you know, you get some guys that uh, um, I hate to say it this way, but some guys like hockey more than others. They just yeah. happen to be good at it. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Keith as well. And I remember hearing Johnny Gaudreau tell the story of how in Matthew's rookie year, they were at a team dinner and I, I guess they must've been in St. Louis or something because Keith was there and, and Gaudreau was saying that Matthew was talking uh, you know, guys, guys like Giordano were, were quiet and Keith just kind of leaned over and said, hey, it's, you played 20 games in the NHL, like shut up, you know, you let everybody else talk, you're a rookie. And Yeah, <laughs> this is a learning moment, right? <laughs> when you're around those veterans, you shut up and listen. And you yeah. know, those, those dinners, by the way, I miss those. Now, we still have some great ones uh, with Hockey Night uh, on occasion, in particular when we're on the road in the playoffs. But uh, when I'm on the road with the Flames broadcast team, man, we have some good dinners. And we sit around chatting just like this, Ryan. We share our opinions about the game. And, and it reminds me so much of playing in the NHL. You know, if you're on a, a road trip and you have a night off before a game, and uh, I remember there would be nights where 10 or 12 of us would go out for dinner and we're talking about the opposition the next night. And, you know, everybody might have a different opinion about their team and certain players and it was kind of cool to listen to and uh you know i might like a certain player and somebody else said, nah i don't think he's that good on the wall and you know or it's you know all these different opinions and and that's what uh, i really enjoy about uh, even the current job because that's what we get to do yeah that's yeah i mean the camaraderie too of sports in general i've always said like hockey to me is just the best group of guys because i played lacrosse growing up too but Hockey was was the one thing where you know you're on a bus. You know my my neck of the woods. It was you take a bus down to Seattle, and that's that two and a half hour drive is when you really get to know your your teammates and 
Yeah, playing the Western Hockey League, my friend, when we were, <laughs> we were busting you know, hours and hours and hours. I mean, yeah. but uh, not to make light of it, but it was, uh, yeah, you're right. And the friendships you you uh, still have to this day. I remember being in Toronto a number of years ago, and uh, on a Saturday night, it ends. We're off the air usually around 1, one fifteen in the morning. And Elliot and I usually go for a glass of wine now, but back then, PJ was working on the show, and we go to a little place that we were going back then, the Irish Embassy, a cool little Irish bar on Young Street in downtown Toronto. Some of your uh, viewers, listeners might know that place. And I go in there, and lo and behold, there's a guy that I played junior with in Medicine Hat. He lives in a, a place called Beaver Lodge outside Grand Prairie, Alberta, and he was in uh, Toronto for business. We had no idea. And uh, so Tom and I, Tom Adams is his name, and we got a chance to share I don't know about an hour or so together is awesome and you know so friendships like that never disappear it's it's amazing yeah absolutely and and switching over to the, the hockey night because um you know I, I had a chance to kind of take in a lunch with kevin bieksa virtually as, as he was going off on kessler and burrows about not paying their wi-fi bills and that's why you know kessler's face kept freezing on the screen but uh I mean, that just seems like the most fun job, not just because you get to talk hockey, but because of the crew. And and I, I love the fact that, you know, Hockey Night in Canada, it's outside of, you know, David Amber, Ron McLean, those guys, like you you do, you've got ex-players like Cassie Campbell and, uh, you know, now Anthony Stewart, who, uh, who who's really come a long way from his first couple couple nights. And I mean, that's that's got to be the best job, though. I mean, I, I'm speculating, but. The no, smile right. on your face tells me that I'm probably you're on the track right, there. and it's not lost on me that I work on a show called Hockey Night in Canada that's been around forever and ever, and uh, I'm still amazed that I'm I go into that studio every Saturday, and and uh, I think oftentimes my first few nights on the show back in 1995 when I was still a player for LA, and I was uh, they had this brand new uh, atrium show. Uh, in the playoffs that year, and Ron McLean and, and Don Cherry, of course, they're the stars, but uh, they were going to give Don the night off every second night. And so I went in there and uh, sat in that chair beside Ron, and uh, just hearing the music in my ear the first time blew me away. Because growing up, like I said, in Edmonton, we watched Hockey Night in Canada faithfully on Saturdays, and, and that music so iconic. And uh, to have that play in my ear, um, and I just, I'm thrilled to say that uh, people might say, hey, what do you do for a living? And I go, oh, I'm a hockey analyst. And who do you work for? Well, I do Sportsnet games for the Calgary Flames. And I work on a national show called Hockey Night in Canada. It still gives me chills, right? It's the yeah. greatest thing to have uh, that beside your name. How much prep goes into those shows? Or do you guys just kind of adapt as things progress in the games? Or Everything's fluid, but I'd say the prep is... Uh, Endless. I don't think I can use any other word that would properly or accurately describe what goes into uh, being a hockey analyst in today's world. Like you, you don't have nights off. I mean, yeah. and, and and that's not a complaint because I like hockey, right? And I'm lucky because my wife likes to watch watch hockey, so um, <clears throat> it's not as though I feel like I just disappear and. Uh, I'm not around, um, although I have to do that from time to time. You, you know, you got to really dig in at other times. But <clears throat> I'm always aware of what's going on. I stay in contact with enough people that uh, if I'm unsure of things, uh, you know, I make phone call or text message a lot. Um, but here, as an example, this is what 
could look like a Friday night for me. So I might be with the Flames on a road trip somewhere. Let's just say <clears throat> they played in Dallas on a Thursday. So Dallas to Toronto is a pretty good flight. It's over four hours, I think. So that happens on Friday. I, I get to my hotel. I check in. There's a two-hour time change, so it's a little bit later. <clears throat> and I decide where I'm going to go for dinner. But I'm also thinking, what hockey games are on the air that night that I should keep an eye on? So I'll bring my cell phone, I'll bring my iPad, and I'll order dinner, and I'll watch two hockey games while I'm having dinner. And yeah. so, and that, that, that eases my sort of anxiety, because then I feel like I haven't cheated myself, or I haven't cheated the viewer at home <clears throat> by not really paying attention to what, you know, that, that's my job, even though you know, go feed yourself as part of living as well. But, you know, you got to keep your eye on the game. And uh, so it's endless. And uh, But I'm happy to say that I take a really good break at the end of uh, the hockey season. So in a regular year, I usually get from, uh, say, June 15th till middle of September off, basically, or, you know, depending if there's a World Cup or preseason games in China, which happened a couple of years ago. But uh, yeah. And I, I really do enjoy my time off. And I I'm selfish in that way, and I spend a lot of time with my wife and I, and we do tons of golf. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, it sounds like that is your pregame skate, eh? The, the two the two cell phone or the two devices as you're watching your games. And, yeah, um, and, uh, you know, on the road, I go to the morning skate in Toronto. I don't normally because I like to uh, uh, rest, in fact, and get caught up from a lot of travel during the week. And, and I'm getting older, and so that travel is – does beat you up more than it has in the past. And so you got to make sure that you're ready for Saturday night. Cause there's a lot of eyeballs on that. <laughs> night. Yeah. No kidding. What did you think of the bubble this year? Cause I, I mean, you know, it was such a unique scenario and I saw all you guys, I mean, you looked like you were working from home, but some of the guys were in studio and it just seemed like it went off without a hitch. Um, obviously, and I'm, I'm happy they made it work, but, uh, I'm shocked. The NHL and Gary Bettman and everybody did an amazing job. And all the teams that were in those bubbles, they should get a lot of credit because I had no idea that they were going to pull it off seamlessly. Now, maybe to ask me what the bubble is like, maybe not a fair question because I wasn't actually in a bubble. Yeah. I was, as you mentioned, I most of the time I did it out of my house, although the last 18 nights of the playoffs, I did go to Toronto and it was kind of like a, abbreviated bubble sort of that we were in uh we we're doing our best in the studio to be distance and you know i think i was uh, 30 feet away from uh, ron and kevin where their desk was and david and brian they were upstairs yeah. and maybe 50 feet away when i was on set with elliot he wasn't even in the same room he's in a different area and so that was different but we had to do it it was necessary but when i talked to people that were in the bubble their experiences weren't as pleasant as what would appear to us. So they they didn't have a ton of things to do for the most part. Uh, again, the NHL tried their best, but this all came together pretty quickly. And uh, the mental health aspect of it was really difficult. You heard Rick Bonus talk about that, I think, uh, and he was only talking about that in the second round, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so they played in the round robin, or no, it was the first actual round of the plus, and he talked about the difficulty of being in a bubble, and he looked very emotional, like getting choked up, like this is not easy. And so for them to uh, power through and get to the finals was a major accomplishment. But I talked to other people, and they said the same thing. Like I was surprised Tuka Rask was the only guy that left the bubble. Yeah. From what I gather, that was family reasons, not necessarily mental health 
But I was telling people leading into those playoffs in the bubble scenario that I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of players left simply because of maybe their own mental health and or family members back home that just couldn't handle the time away and, and all that stuff. But uh, I even talked to people in the hockey broadcast uh, segment that were actually in the bubble, and I had a number of people tell me how difficult it was and it was getting the best of them. Um, I kind of had an episode in the finals. I, I was in Toronto. seemed weird, you know. I didn't like going on the plane from Calgary to Toronto, but I thought it was necessary to be in that studio. Um, and I, the plane was weird to me. The plane flying home was weird. Uh, I don't know if you've been on a plane since the pandemic started in March. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I didn't like it. The hotel, it was eerie in the hotel because I stayed at, at a large hotel in Toronto and there's almost nobody there. The restaurant was rarely ever open, <clears throat> and uh, I, I got stuck in my brain. So leading into the very last uh, weekend of the playoffs, uh, Tampa and Dallas, uh, they had a Friday and Saturday nights back-to-back, and then the games were going to go on Monday if, if necessary and Wednesday for Game 7. And I like to go for walks and clear my head, and uh, Friday and Saturday I did myself a big disservice. I, I made a Clearly, I made a big mistake. There was no walk, and I got stuck watching the news all afternoon, and uh, that became my loop. So the pandemic, this was the start of the second wave, and my brain was on fire. <clears throat> In fact, so much so that I didn't know if I was going to be able to work. Uh, like, I was yeah. out of sorts. I just wanted to go home. So I expressed my uh, concerns to my producers and everything on Friday. I got through. Saturday became worse, and... And I was really close to not going on the air. I was just so out of sorts. And I got through it. And uh, then Saturday, right after the broadcast, one of my producers came and met me in my dressing room area and, and asked how I was doing And because they said I could go home if I wanted. And I didn't even have to work games uh, six and seven if they were necessary. And I said, no, I think I'm okay. So Sunday I went for a three-and-a-half-hour walk and cleared my mind and, and – got healthy enough that I could stay again till and Monday they closed it out. But, uh, and I went home and that was a big sigh of relief for me. So I don't know what it's going to look like coming up, but that's a long winded answer or discussion about the bubble and why the bubble won't exist again, but it's not easy. No, I mean, I, I'm a Washington Capitals fan and, and they got bounced pretty early and, uh, there was a report that came out. It wasn't you know, wasn't verified, but it wouldn't shock me at all that a lot of the guys, you know, I think in the, in the, the downtime, like I know Ovechkin had a kid, Carlson's wife had a kid, uh, I think Oshie's wife, and then uh, Nick Jensen, his wife, I think they also, you know, and it was like these guys, they don't they don't want to be there. And, and the fact that it, you know, there was really only on Washington, there were only a couple of guys that when I watched them looked like they were trying. And I, But the thing is, like you said, you can't really blame these guys. I mean, it is, we've all, we've all gone through it. And so... Uh, yeah, it's it's hopefully they can figure out a, a better way to handle it if, if we're going to get going here in, in mid-January. You know, it was un- interesting you bring that up too because I can't remember what round it might have been. I think only the second round or something like that, maybe even in the first, but my wife and I were talking about that and uh, a team was down 3-1. And she said, what do you think they're going to extend the series? And I'm thinking, I don't know. This is the first time in my sporting life I could – probably say that I thought they might be okay losing that they just want to get home and get out of the bubble and she agreed she said yeah like if I'm 
you know, normally I, I would always want you to play as long as possible, but under these circumstances, she's like, yeah, I think I just need my hubby home. And, yeah. and uh, I thought that a lot when teams were facing elimination games, how conflicting that thought must have been in their brain, their head, like, yeah, we're athletes and the goal is to win the Stanley Cup, but there's also this pandemic going on and I'm missing everybody and the world seems different. I, I thought about that often about those poor families. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Elliot was 50 feet away. Was that because his beard was so gross nobody wanted to be around him? Or I loved it. I know that I think on social media he might have taken a bit of a beating. I know other people loved it as well, but that if people don't know, that's what Elliot does in the summer. So when we're done yeah. June 15th or 12th or whatever that day may be every year, he looks like that all summer long. And uh, I know he posts the odd thing on social media uh, every, uh, previous summers, but that's what he normally looks like. And I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, well, I, I was sitting on my couch and my brother was texting me. He goes, who's this new guy on CBC? And I thought he was talking about Anthony Stewart being kind of newer to the team. And I turn it on and he goes, and I, you guys were on, or well, I don't even know if, if you were on for this particular game, but it was the four panels on TV. And he goes, no, no, the guy, the guy on the bottom right. And I'm looking, I'm like, I, I don't know. And then he started talking. He's got that distinct voice. I'm like, I think that's Friedman. I had no idea that. But if he does that every summer, he's very good at keeping it uh, under wraps. He does something really cool with that. And he did it again this year. Uh, when he does decide to shave it off, he shaves it off for charity and people make donations and stuff. And, uh, and I could be wrong the number, but I think he raised something close to 10,000 bucks this year. Oh, to wow. shave it. So, uh, yeah, that's really cool. Is awesome, and uh, you know we've we've had a great chat. And Kelly, you did mention that this is kind of your off season, and uh, you wanted to be golfing as much as you can. Which I'm not sure how that's like in December, but um, so I, I, you know, I do want to end on something. We've had a lot of fun, but uh, you did receive an honorary degree from Mount Royal for your mental health advocacy, and uh, you know the last several months have been tough. Uh, I know for myself, living alone, uh, no roommates, no children, nothing like, not even a goldfish. Uh, that it's, it can be tough. And, and I just uh, was wondering if you had any advice or any resources you could recommend for those of us that uh, are struggling. Absolutely. And, and just talk to somebody. And, and thanks for sharing, Ryan, that it got you also, that you've got to talk to somebody because you, you just can't do it alone. It's too difficult. And that's one of the things that, uh, you know, really warms my heart about what's this discussion has been going on for a number of years now, right? So when Caitlin uh, shared her story in 2013, um, we got a lot of attention. She uh, received a lot of uh, praise nationally and so on. And, and it's so beautiful because the, the important part about this is when you share with people, uh, you won't be criticized. It's not like this would have been 20 years ago, 15 years ago, where, say, two grown men like you and I could be sharing this conversation. Hey, Ryan, how you doing? How you feeling? Are you okay? What have you been going through? And what are your experiences? And it's okay now to say that. Uh, and I, what was really great for Caitlin is that I have to tell you the night before her story was going to go national, uh, we had a great conversation and I said, you sure you want to go through with this? Cause, uh, social media was just really getting going. I, you know, it wasn't yeah. at the point where it is now. And I, I was afraid of the bashers and, you know, much to my surprise, she didn't have one, not one. She just had love. And so you know, it's a great conversation. Uh, I was really honored by Mount Royal University. They gave me that honorary degree and it really meant the world to me. That's great stuff. And uh, 
Again, Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to, to come on the show. Like I said, episode one, so it can only go downhill from here. So thank you for, set, for setting the bar high. And, uh, sure, you're going to have a lot of great guests. I look forward <laughs> to watching these too. It'll be great. Oh, I appreciate that. And uh, so, yeah, I hope you and, and your family uh, have a very merry holiday season. And uh, again, thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Ryan. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kelly. That was awesome, man.